podcast producer Trent here. Today's episode, we're joined by Horrible History's Greg Jenner and also Laser Harperist Steve Thompson. Don't forget to tip jar at cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home. Don't forget our Patreon at patreon.com slash cosmicshambles. Enjoy today's episode. Yeah, that's a good shot to open with. I like that. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good all right. Morning. Good morning. Are you Welcome. okay? Yeah, I am. I was, I was too so, so mesmerized by you doing the big mouth look there that uh, <laughs> it was it was kind of terrifying in a good way. Um, I'm a fearful creature. Um, the uh, we're all fearful creatures and we're all absurd and once we've uh, managed to address that we'll all be a lot happier um welcome to the show we're just waiting to find greg jenner greg jenner is our uh, is our guest today many of you will know him from i mean the first time i knew about him was uh, uh working on horrible histories his brilliant work on, on on horrible histories and uh since then he's written a, a a book which covers pretty much the whole of the history of civilization and now a whole history of celebrity and you know because i first met him josie at a gig that we did together that you put on uh with kate That's tempest as well yeah. yeah, yeah, he's been a really, really fantastic supporter of Arts Emergency. It was really, really great. Um, it's it's funny in my head, like lots of people are sort of categorised as like a good comrade to Arts Emergency, <laughs> and then that's sort of been like indelibly printed on my mind. Yeah, he's 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 a he's. A, I'm really excited to be talking to him when it's yeah. It's, it's a good it's, it's a good book. It's it's uh I I I read uh, I read it last night. Read it this morning, and it covers you know Edmund Keane and Oscar Wilde and uh, and Miley Cyrus. There's a brilliant line I think where Miley Cyrus is described as some, as something like the 21st century Socrates in hot pants uh, <laughs> or something equivalent to that. Um, and uh, we'd just first of all say as well. By the way, this is now episode about 82. We've done quite a few of these. We started these almost the moment the lockdown began, and uh, there is a reason, by the way, that we don't use Zoom. Just so you know, uh, because uh, Trent has got bored of, hey, guys, why don't you use Zoom? There are reasons. We do promise you there are reasons that we are, as usual, working in uh, a more arcane and archaic environment. Uh, that, that, that's what we've always been. Someone said this is the problem with a lot of what we create, Josie. We're very much still an analog generation. Mm. We still print the fanzines mm. and we still read the books on paper. And do you know what? It's too late to change, and I refuse to change. No, I, I. If you haven't got paper cuts after reading a good book, you haven't lived. Um, I've got a show and tell today, which I really, I think you're going to like. As you know, I've mentioned this before. I, I love um, old magazines. In fact, tomorrow I might read from the magazine all about charm, which Ooh, is very useful. Love you. Yes. Um, <laughs> or I might even read. What is wrong with modern painting? <laughs> I've got a um, a pamphlet that um, Nye Bevan wrote, and it's called "Why Not Trust the Tories?" Mm. Oh, <laughs> and it's oh, just yeah, so yeah. coy. It's a galance, isn't it? It's one of those beautiful uh, galance books, yellow cover, and kind of. Oh, that's. Uh, I nearly. I, I found uh, Jeff from uh, Dylan's Bookshop, Mobile Bookshop. Uh, I, I didn't get my bid in quick enough. He had a pamphlet from 1909 about the Labour movement and uh, a general kind of just how's it all going pamphlet about the, the Labour movement. And I was going to try and get that to you. I think somebody who was trying to be rude about sort of the last few years in Labour on my Twitter and was saying, Labour now is just a protest movement. And I found it really amusing because I was like, A, like that's sort of really, really counter to what everyone else in the media is saying about Kistama. And B, like, I don't want to have to alert you to the early 20th century, but it's going to blow your mind. 
like, don't alert anyone don't to alert the early 20th century. The history of it. <laughs> Let's skip the 20th century altogether. Apart from uh, this particular week, uh, June 30th to July the 6th, 1963. Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. today's show and tell is uh, a copy of the TV Times from the Anglia region. So there might be regional variations in your return Who's to on the phone? 1963. It's just a classic uh, picture of uh, Raymond Francis and Eric Lander from No Hiding Place. Um, this it also... is what I miss and what I wish I could experience more is the locality of media so you know just the anglia region but everyone would have bought it so it's going to sell like a i don't know fifty thousand copies or something but it's so and and the idea that you'd have your film company making films just for manchester you know it's so exciting to me i i I, well this is what i mean this is so monday july the first i'll just run you through this oh by the way also if you uh buy quick brew tea uh you'll get money off a three pack of nylons there we go and what's the discount one and six uh, it's about yeah, it, it's it's just over a shilling off, just over a shilling off. It is about one and six, yeah. So, uh, um, so on Monday, no television till four forty-five. You've got things to do, thank you. Um, <laughs> then it starts off with small time uh, with Barbara and the Uncleope. Barbara Brown has never seen an Uncleope, but she is still expecting one for tea and wonders what he will be like. I was trying to play some background music, but it didn't work, and I'm so sorry. That's all right. And then at five o'clock, it's seeing sport uh, in which uh, Calcott Riley will instruct young people on the basic principles of sailing a cadet. 525, Huckleberry Hound. Uh, And then at five past six, it's summertime about Anglia with Bob Wellings and John McGregor and their leading questions in which a group of teenagers question a national figure about his life and opinions. This evening's guest is, and this is what you're going to like, Josie, George Woodcock, General Secretary of the TUC. Oh, come on. See, that was a time when people weren't shy of putting union leaders on mainstream television programmes. I How knew you would love that listening. What's happened. <laughs> and then there's uh, oh, the, the rest of it. New Breed starring Leslie Nielsen as Lieutenant Price Adams. Uh, and then at 11 o'clock news headlines, 5 past 11, Anglia News. And then at 8 minutes past 11, that's how specific it used to be, Adventures in Learning, Citizenship, a series designed to help viewers think creatively about their own surroundings and the life in their chosen community. Oh, Number 10, God. The I like John. the past. I, I like, like the past a lot. <laughs> okay, Greg, this is where we can link into Greg because something that's very interesting to me, which is about, about celebrity. Celebrity and history is that we've often talked about the fact that Jimmy Reed would go on Parkinson and that and that at that time there were people who were kind of political, uh, especially from the left, who were kind of a part of culture. Now, when I think about things like Dragons Den or certain celebrities, um, The Apprentice. Feels like that pendulum has gone completely the other way and the people who are becoming kind of celebrities without being in entertainment are like capitalists and business people is that a thing is that a trend was well, that let's find out from greg but let's not find that out we're not going to tell you what greg thinks until you have checked our tip jar and <laughs> placed something in it um and also to uh remember as well uh that uh patreon if you can support us via patreon basically our patreon page i think says book shambles but actually what it does is it supports all the different things that we do not merely that we've been doing during, during lockdown and uh we basically we've given all the money away that we've made we we uh we made some money over the last few weeks and we've given that to various artists and art centres and that is all gone and so if you can support us via Patreon or play something uh, in the tip jar, uh, that will be very, very useful for all of the things that we're trying to create and the things and the people and the buildings that we are trying to support as well. 
So have a look at our Patreon. As I said, that covers, it says book shambles, but it covers absolutely everything that we make. And also, uh, if you get the chance, pop down to the tip jar. And if you're free tonight, tonight at I'll... half past eight, I am going to be performing my stand-up show, Tender, which I was supposed to be taking on tour for the foreseeable future, and which I am not. Um, and I'm going to be doing it on twitch.tv or on this very same, same stream, and you can join in and enjoy it. Well, now we force forced money out of them. I hope <laughs> Greg's got a very good answer. Hello, Greg Jenner. Hello, Greg Jenner. Hello. How are you? Hello. I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, um, I've, I've really beautiful thing. And I watched Bill the other day, which was an absolute yeah. to five years later. But, uh, but man, this it was a great piece of work. And we will talk about that connection to Edmund Keane, who is, is one of the first stories in your book. But first of all, horrible history. Did that change the way you saw history when you were looking it through, you know, someone there who has, has gone through the, the academic world of history, gone, gone through university, and then you're, you're working out how to make history so alluring to a very broad age group? That is such a good question. And you've absolutely flummoxed me. First thing in um, um, horrible histories has been probably the greatest thing I'll ever do with my life. And which is slightly awkward because it sort of means I peaked at 24, but um doing it was just the most joyous thing because at the heart of it was this understanding from the team around me particularly my producer caroline that the history would come first Mm -hmm. so although it's a comedy show and everyone loves how silly it is and we do fart jokes and poo jokes and people falling over uh absolutely everything on that show i had a veto on i could say no to anything at all and we wouldn't do it and there is no other show like that every other show that gets made is sort of you know there are all the editorial choices are about entertainment and quality and do we want to do this and can we afford that and whatever. On Horrible History, it was just like, is that true? Yes or no? And if it's not, we're not doing it. So your question about whether it changed my perception of history, actually, no, it didn't, because really what I got to do was was bring my <laughs> my strongly furious biases about what is history and put it on television for kids and make it funny at the same time. That is so. Is the one particular story that you had more people than ever saying, Greg, we do not believe this is true. This cannot, because there are revelations. You know, sometimes when my son would run to me and say, Dad, you won't believe who exploded when they were being buried or whoever it might be. You know, and we'd, we'd have to go and double check all of that. But that that is, there must be some stories where you went, I'm going to have to show you the footnotes now. I'm going to have to show you, you know, that. There are pr- probably 30 or 40 that where the entire team just sat around the table, sat around going, the table going, no, no, we simply do not believe that this is true. And I'd have to sort of go, all right, well, I'll, let me go get the book and show you. The, yeah, exactly that, because um, they're often to do with poo and, and exploding. But uh, there's, there's things like the in medieval in medieval Europe, there was a very precious metal called antimony, which is a heavy metal, and it would be used as a medicine and you would ingest it. But because it doesn't digest, it passes out through the rectum and you poo it out and you fish it out and you clean it off and you put it back in your pot for next time. And it would be passed down as a family heirloom. So you bought it once and you used it numerous times and then it would go down to your child and to your grandchildren and it would be literally passed through and then passed on. And I think that was one of those ones where everyone went, no, come on, no, no, that cannot be. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's... that's... Did it have any properties? Did it do anything? I mean, (laughs) I'm not a physiologist. I don't know if it has 
I mean, it mu- if you ingest heavy metals, I imagine it does something. I don't know if it's a good thing. Um, but some of the cures for plague in the 14th century were fairly mad. So swallowing something like that would probably be in some ways better than some of the other cures, such sure. as um, plucking a chicken and strapping it to the armpits. That was a relatively... Oh, that wise to me. Get well, I mean, it's, you know, chickens were available. So that, that was... <laughs> if you... There's a similar scene in John Waters' Pink Flamingos, but we won't go into that now. Um, <laughs> that is... But that's that's one your of things... answer to everything, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a similar scene in John Waters' Desperate Living. Uh, <laughs> Simon Thomas. Charlie Esther. Um, the, uh, I, 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 this is one of the things that I still... One of the great joys of, I think, having a child is that your education has to open up. And it, and it is... like I mean, I was amazed when my son was doing his science and i am i'm you know I'm in, I'm in a fortunate position but I'm, I'm quite enjoying the bits of homeschooling that i am kind of you know uh, in, in, involved with but you know finding out things like when he said how many how much of the periodic table were, were metals almost the entire periodic table almost all elements of metals and i was like uh, do you know what I, I think we're just gonna have to check that and i'm someone who does science programming you know but I, yeah. it's one of those things that hasn't really come up and i went yep you're right you have shaded in all of the correct areas this is <laughs> and that i think is yeah it's that's why i love things like horrible histories as well is because it is constantly every episode has at least one revelation i mean not just an interesting fact like a revelation yeah and i think what i what i love about the the fact that i get to work on these shows and i'm I'm making a homeschooling um, radio show for bbc radio 4 at the moment which is called homeschool history which is on monday mornings and it's the same thing it's just 14 minutes of sort of fun chat about historical periods but what um what's so fun about my job is that i i'm learning all the time i'm forever sort of stumbling on things or looking things up or uncovering things and the number of times i'm astonished by something that i thought i knew and then suddenly it's like no that's not true this is true and you go well that's a better that's better than what we've got you know so many times on horrible histories the writers would pitch something and it would be funny hilarious and i'd say no i i can do better i can top that i've got this over here this is real you can't and write better than reality you can't write better than reality and truth is always almost always funnier than fiction because fiction to a certain extent is predicated on what we the mental processes we 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 sort of bumble along as creatives as comedy writers as performers as novelists or whatever we all have these sort of slight railway tracks we tend to go down and so we quite often are slightly hemmed in by our life experiences by our understanding of the world that we live in by the culture we grow up in the language we speak and so sometimes the funnier thing is actually to lift yourself out of, sorry, my microphone's collapsing, to lift yourself out of the modern world that we live in now and go and say, right, okay, but how do people perceive the world in the 15th century? Mm. And they perceived it entirely differently. They were just like us in so many ways. They needed all the same necessities that we do, like going to the loo and and cleaning your teeth and eating. and, And they loved their children and they danced and they sang and they did jokes, all the stuff that we do. But their cosmos was different and their mentality was different. And so sometimes the jokes are just better because they've come from a different human universe. I remember that was a really exciting part of doing my degree. I I, I did English literature, but I was looking up, uh, I looked up a lot of joke books from kind of the uh, 16th century onwards. And just finding that like, there was one particular, Um, which I think was from the 17th century that was just so violent. And all the jokes (laughs) were basically, and then an anvil fell on his head. So he fell off the donkey and he died. (laughs) The punch, like, you know, it'll be like a very gentle victim was traveling along the road and then a duck knocked his head off good like you're like this isn't a joke 
I think the joke thing is very interesting. I mean, that, like more recently, obviously, but things like uh, there's a, a wonderful book which you might know, Greg, Hammer and Tickle, which is all about the 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 jokes during the most oppressive periods of the of the communist regime. Oh, in, yeah. And if we're going to talk about that, we've got to talk about Shostakovich thirteen. Yeah. The, um, the um, uh, who wrote it? Is it Yevtushenko? The, the there's a whole bit in it called humor about like how you know the powers that be tried to kill off humor but humor is the cleverest and most tricksy thing alive from that exact period who wrote it i think wait there i'm gonna look it up well i mean and tim key obviously uh is obsessed with uh is it daniel, uh, daniel harms the russian sort of absurdist writer who was a victim of that kind of brutal regime and yet wrote these incredibly dark surreal absurdist kind of kafkaesque stories and, and jokes that are bleak and yet at the heart of them is something really funny oh god who's the author i'm trying to think of um this way to the gas ladies and gentlemen uh, polish oh, yeah. author, which is i just read the first couple of stories in that collection yeah. and it is yeah i mean that is well we we must talk about your 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 latest book as well mm-hmm. because i think that again that way of uh the the prism to get a sense of of, of hum- sometimes the, the changing things of humanity and sometimes the, the the repeated stories um you know you i mean interesting you start off the book the day you start writing is the day that david bowie died yeah which is pure coincidence that's not you know that's not you know i, I wasn't waiting for him to die that would be a very <laughs> macabre way to begin a book um finally yeah (laughs) i had no idea he was ill as of course most of us didn't and um it was pure coincidence it was january 2016 that i began work on the book i'd been given the green light i ran downstairs with my laptop and went hooray i'm writing a book about celebrity and 20 minutes later my phone did a sort of you know a bbc klaxon and suddenly this titan of the 20th century was gone and everyone freaked out on twitter on the radio in the media because he had been talismanic he'd been one of the greatest sort of pop culture icons of the 20th century and 21st century you know he was still making good interesting work but he had stage managed his death he hadn't told anyone no one had an idea and of course famously his album was out that week he had a brand new album fans hadn't even heard it yet reviews were just starting to come in people were going oh david bowie's doing really interesting work this is you know this is a a dark new direction but a sort of retrospective mournful kind of approach i wonder what you know inspired this and then suddenly he was dead and there was this grief moment where the nation or rather more than one nation that you know many people around the world were completely destabilized by this Mm. icon this hero this figure who has always been around suddenly wasn't there anymore and it had come out of nowhere. And this is a shock that happens all the time with celebrity deaths. And we had it in 2016 with so many beloved celebrities dying. Prince was, you know, I think a huge one for many people. Um, but we're going to we're gonna keep having those sort of moments because celebrity culture massively escalated in the 60s because of the arrival of televisions into our homes, which then gave us an intimacy and a connection to so many people on our TV screens night after night. So we're going to keep, unfortunately having these feelings of suddenly being really shook and kind of like, you know, a little bit personally wounded and sad that people we've grown up loving or admiring or just they were always there in the background, you know, Terry Wogan or Bob Monkhouse, people just were on the telly. When they go, it is a reminder of our own mortality. So we we go, oh, God, I'm getting older. And also these are people who have often been 
transformative in culture and, and society. They've often shaped our values. They've often been uh, a huge part of the entertainment landscape or the cultural landscape or the political landscape. And when they go, it is a shock to who we are because we realized their importance, their impact and what they meant to us, which we hadn't necessarily always considered. We might not have had their posters on the walls, but the moment they die, we realize, oh, no, that that person mattered. And I'm sad about it. And so we're losing celebrities a lot now because there are a lot of celebrities and there, there have been a lot of celebrities since the 1700s. Can I really recommend, by the way, if anyone didn't see it uh, a few weeks ago when we had Natalie Haynes on and uh, and David McCollman. David McCollman at the beginning did this fantastic 10-minute piece about 2016 about uh, Bowie, Prince and George Michael and creating this kind of very mythic scene, the way that we can create a myth, which in some way kind of gives a sucker. And I would highly recommend that. And can I also say that it's a real joy for someone to be making a very, very pertinent point and a point which is is well worth reflecting on and also see that their arm is desperately holding up their microphone. <laughs> Nothing sums up the absurdity of humanity than both a be beautiful, serious pricey of our relationship with celebrity and also a fear that the mic's about to fall. Yeah, that's that's what humanity. I want to say. You know, no, there's, there's been a lot of bookshelf discourse of late, and I can yeah. clearly see you've got a book called Victorian Farm, and yeah. I just want to know if it's got pictures in or not. That's all oh, I want to know. Loads of pictures. Hang on. Uh, where am I? Where, tell me. Yes, there it is. It's the only one I can see the title of, and I was like, what? Yeah. So this is made by Lion Television, uh, the TV show. It was a huge hit. It got millions of viewers, and my friends worked on it very hard. Out of the loop. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's been a few years old. It's basically, a team of three historians uh, basically lived on a farm for a year and just farmed it like Victorians would. And they did all the cooking, they did all the agricultural stuff, they did all the stuff you would expect them to do. And it was a documentary series. There was um, Victorian was Farm Edwardian Farms. Massive success. Yeah, fascinating. Eat. But I mean, um, in terms of like the food production. Yeah, I mean, they they learned a huge amount doing it. It's a they're a really lovely series of programs. Um, there was Victorian Farm, Edwardian Farm, World War Two Farm, Tudor Farm, I think. Um, and they are. It's a very nice book. That's what but, I know about these farming programs. I'm sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to derail us with. Tell us oh, yeah. about somebody else's program. No, it's fine. I'm like that must be a historical tome with it's lots beautiful. of pictures. It's lovely, but my friends worked on this show. So for a year, they were they were like Victorian farmers. I mean, they were making a program. Them. Did you have to write them a telegram or a letter? <laughs> no, you know, they were available because it's, it's a TV production still. But it's it's, it's it's a really lovely thing, and it yeah for for several years they were making that show, and, and whenever I wanted to speak to them, they'd be like, yeah, I'm on the I'm on the farm in I'm Shropshire, Victorian farm. Yeah, and they they'd be living, they'd be wearing the clothes. They uh you know they're they're chasing geese around the place. They're you know trying to trying to get a sort of mechanical tractor going you know it's Victorian very farm christmas as well must have been incredible there's a whole christmas episode, episode. um and that was my undergraduate dissertation dissertation for the history of victorian christmas so i did a little bit of work on that as well so um yeah i there was a lovely show very nice show so there was oh, oh, I, I wanted to I'm jump the show talk about another show but i was like this <laughs> is a fun book <laughs> it is a fun book yeah. The um, uh, I was going to so D dead famous, which is um, why did you decide that that was going to be your next book in terms of because it is it's filled with again that, that that's it's got beautiful connections to also you know a much broader social history than merely celebrity. But what was it that was there in particular? Was there a story that you hit upon that you thought this is something now that needs reflecting upon? 
the um, the impulse, the impulse in my career, my career is, is basically that I'm I'm a public historian, and so my job is to always find ways to engage the public in conversation, trying to get them to enjoy history. You know, as as you do in science, you know, you're doing a huge amount of work trying to get people to demystify and not think of science as boring or difficult. And so, what I try and do is find out what people are interested in, and then I try and deliver that content to them in a way they might enjoy. So, having done my first book about the history of daily life. It's about toilets and showers and food and all sorts of things like that. Um, I realized the next big thing would be what, what else is a universal force in our society that people don't necessarily realize as a history, but they engage with it every day and they love it and they're obsessed with it. And I was thinking about sport. I was thinking about television and so on. But then it dawned on me no one had written a book on celebrity. Huh. And I'm not hugely interested in celebrity culture myself. I love movies and comedy and music and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not like into the Kardashians and, and reality TV. So for me, it was a bit of a learning curve, actually. And I had to throw myself in and it took me four years to write it. But it it really changed my opinion i went in a little bit snarky to be honest i was you know i was going to write quite a sort of facetious book a bit silly and a bit naughty and then david bowie died and i suddenly went nope i've got this wrong i've got to retool this book i've got to i've got to change how i am communicating this because this matters it's really important celebrity culture is often described as vacuous and superficial meaningless you know it's people in in bikinis unnecessarily. It's people doing stupid things on television for no reason. They've got no talent. They've got no skill. Yada yada yada. All those complaints have been made for for a long time. It's just not true. Celebrity culture is profound. It's meaningful. It's powerful. It drives our conversations, our ethical conversations, our moral conversations about right and wrong, who we are as a people, who we want to be as a people, what we aspire to be. We have these conversations with our family members and our friends and our hairdressers and taxi drivers about these strangers. And those conversations unite us and help us figure out who we want to be as a society, as individuals. And so celebrities are role models, but they're also transgressors. They push the boundaries. They overstep the line. They are there to sometimes reassert the rules. So we punish them or we cancel them in Internet culture. And we say, oh, this person's bad. We hate them. We're going to we're going to stop buying their albums. Or sometimes they do something provocative and bold and we go. Oh, no, I like that. That's good. That's 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 interesting. All right. I guess we've we've moved on as a society that we're kind of now on board with this. So David Bowie, you know, would turn up wearing makeup and would wear androgynous clothes and would be gender fluid in some ways. And people went, yeah, that's OK. That's all right. We're not we're not going to ban him from the radio. We're not going to kick him off top of the pops. We think he looks pretty good. And that was a moment where you have a, a major cultural figure changing the conversation. Celebrity culture does that on a daily basis. Now, sometimes it can be vacuous. Sometimes it can be superficial. Sometimes that's the point is that it's impermanent and it's temporary and it's a bit of fun. But when you look at the history of it, which I've done in this book and the book is meant to be funny and lighthearted and easy to read, but it is a history book. It's, you know, full of a sort of sneak some theory in every now and then. But it's a book about what happens when you have 300 years of this short-term temporary stuff? And so I look at 125 celebrities from 1709 to 1950 and to see the impact that they had on society and how they got famous and why they got famous and what it meant that they got famous. What did society take from them? Why were they elevated and others weren't? Why were they then forgotten or cancelled or exiled or, you know, 
And these questions are extraordinarily relevant to now. And I was astonished the number of times I could find case studies from the 1720s that made me think of case studies from the 2020s. So it was like, oh, OK, this is not this is not a new subject at all. We have Twitch and Twitter and FaceTime and Skype and all these new platforms for delivering celebrity lives into our living rooms. And that's new. But people were obsessed with celebrities in 1709. And we are now in 1720. So in 2020, sorry. So we... <laughs> 11 <laughs> sorry, I, years later. I live in the past and I've only... Yeah. So, so um, yeah, that's, that's you, my joy for it. Yeah. Can I ask you what you found? Find Did anyone who became famous through a very, very unlikely means. Mm, loads. I mean, Clara the Rhino, I know, was perhaps one of the most interesting ones. She was a two-ton celebrity in the 1740s. She was an Indian rhino imported into Europe, treated like a rock star. She became, sure. a, fa she became a fashion icon. Women wore horns on their hair to look like her. She, <laughs> she was on tour for 17 years, like the Rolling Stones. Uh, and she had a rider. She had like, you know, she had to have a certain amount of um, tobacco uh, that she ate and smoked. She had uh, like beer that she drank. <laughs> um, she was a sort of big star. We have celebrities who were baffled to find themselves as celebrities. So you have, for example, in the 1930s, you have Gertrude Stein, the great intellectual modernist. She was bewildered to be made famous because she'd been mocked for 25 years for being impenetrably difficult to read because her, her modernist poetry was really, really challenging and really difficult. Mm. And then suddenly she wrote this really fun, lively memoir called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, Her Lover. And everyone went, yeah, it's great, love it, brilliant. And it became a bestseller. And she toured America and everyone went, hooray, Gertrude Stein. And she was like, really? Really? You've spent 25 years taking the piss out of me. And they're like, yeah, but you're nice. You're sort of 60 years old and you're a lesbian grandma. And we're like, yay. So she was... That's the best part to become famous, I think, is I, when I, you yeah. lived a life. Yeah, and I love it. I love when you get people like Richard E. Grant getting a kind of renaissance where mm -hmm. everyone goes, oh, no, we like Richard E. Grant. He's lovely. You know, for a while, he didn't have an agent and he was not working so much. And then That's it like, crazy to me. And then he's, he's back and Oscar nominated and everyone's loving him. He's back in Star Wars and we're giving him big love. And it, Good. it's fun when you get those sort of ebbs and peaks in careers and people have to wait 50 years to be discovered. And then on the other hand, you've got in the book, I've got at least uh, two, well, three, probably child stars. So Shirley Temple, famous at four. Um, and then uh, Master Betty in 1803 was a superstar child actor. Uh, he was Irish, English, Irish, and everyone was obsessed with him for about two years. Oh, and no. People smashed down the theatres to go and see him. They pulled out guns and pistols. People were crushed to death in the race to see him live. He was this enormous deal. What did he do? He was just an actor. He was just a child actor. But it was a moment in time where everyone was incredibly stressed because 1803 is when Napoleon is threatening to invade. So the country is in crisis. Everyone knows there's this huge existential threat. And so they turned to this cute 12-year-old boy as their kind of release valve. And so he just would go, he was, you know, he toured the country. He started in Ireland. He played Scotland then north of England and then came down to London. And people went absolutely batshit crazy for him. And he was a huge star for about two years. And then his voice broke and everyone went, nah. Oh. And what <laughs> did he right. do with his life after that? He went to university, he went to Cambridge. Oh, uh, and then he tried to do a comeback. And people were like, not bothered, <laughs> not bothered, mate, sorry. Oh, Master Betty, that must so have been so hard. He, he peaked at 12, um, which is a story that happens a lot. Macaulay Culkin, Shirley Temple. I mean, Shirley Temple had a fascinating life because she was started at four. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, she was told she was younger than she was by the studio. They changed her birth certificate to keep her artificially young. Oh, and, that's awful. Uh, several people tried to kill her, uh, including including a, a really sad story. A woman turned up to one of her live radio performances, pulled out a gun and tried to shoot her because she had read in the papers that Shirley Temple had, built, had been born on the day that her daughter had died. And she thought that Shirley Temple's soul had stolen her daughter's soul. That's the saddest story. And it wasn't true because the studio had lied about her age. She was actually two years older than they'd said. So she was very nearly shot down by this this lady who was grieving deeply uh, because the studio PR had sort of messed about with the old birth certificate. So Shirley Temple peaked in her childhood, carried on acting as a teen, and then later on became an ambassador. She was huh. one of the US's sort of leading diplomats. And you kind of go, that's a weird pivot but that's that's what can happen you can go like one of two ways so um it's very rare for a child actor to keep acting in adulthood it's really difficult oh. to do. It's really i difficult. was going to highly recommend i think one of david cronenberg's most, most un underrated films which is map to the stars oh which yeah it's all about the, i mean it came out that it has julianne moore is is everyone in it is brilliant john cusack julianne moore the whole kit and caboodle uh julianne moore should have won the oscar for that not for her uh um the other it's one of those it came out the same year as birdman and mm. birdman of course did did well at the award ceremony because it goes do you know what being an actor is awfully difficult. I mean, we're, we're actually underneath it all. We're smashing. Matt <laughs> does not do that. And yeah. it, and its view of child actors is it, it's written by, forget the name, the, the guy who wrote Wild Palms as well, mm. uh, which is another fascinating. Uh, but I would really, just because you mentioned that, if yeah. I, it's, I think Cronenberg's one of his most underrated films, like, like Spider. It is so. I love Spider. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Why? Uh, you know, it, what, what a, uh, he is, he's a genius. Um, we will, uh, what we haven't done yet, and we're nearly out of time, is check your show and tell. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I've got a, a couple of things I can show you. I've, very, very quickly, this is just a little gift I was given when I finished my master's degree in medieval studies. This is a, can you see this? This is a, medi a medieval key. Oh. This is the key to knowledge. So this is 700 years old, and it looks like a key you'd have now. It's Keys are incredibly ancient technology. We have them in the ancient Roman world, Egyptian world. They are incredibly simple and yet incredibly sophisticated. They they can give you secrets. And um, I just love the fact that this is 700 years old and it would have meant something to someone. It would have it would have kept their secrets or their important valuables. So I've just got that and on my shelf. On the lookout for old boxes and old doors just to give I'm it a I'm not. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Just trying to sort of see if I can. Oh, the, the treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> I'm um, <laughs> one day, one day. Yeah, I, I suspect it probably wasn't that glamorous, but uh, it's just a cute little thing. It just it reminds you that the history of daily life, mm. you know, we are perpetuating these ideas. I've got keys on my wallet that look roughly similar like that. Um, oh, the only I other thing, to say, yeah, follow yeah, a number of people on the gram who are mudlarkers in the Thames. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I really recommend it to everyone. Just in in the same way of uncovering things that you go, oh, I I didn't realize that different shops had trading tokens yes. or like that people had disposable clay pipes that oh, they just yeah. chuck in the Thames and stuff yeah. like that and it's, it's again it's like the littlest objects but the most like re revelatory stories clay yeah, pipes are incredible because my the I, where, where i was brought up the house that house where I, I, I was actually born in during a snowstorm that was built on the site of an old inn and so every time if i went out to do some digging for my dad or gardening just bits of clay pipe I mean, it's incredible the the amount of clay pipe because you know the the, like the cigarette would have been... butts of the day. Yeah, 
And what sorry, else, sorry, I didn't it's mean all right. to... No, I mean, clay, I, mean I, I studied archaeology as well, and yeah, clay pipes is like the first thing you find. You just find a thousand of them, because they're, they're, they're just basically fags. It's just like, fi- it's like finding... I mean, yeah, it's like basically finding um, Stella Artois cans. It's like, <laughs> it's just ordinary stuff that people are like, oh, I need a hit, chuck it in the bin. Um, the next thing Can I did I want just to say, say you... by the way, because you mentioned that, and every time I go on a walk, people who drink Red Bull, because you've got more energy, why not use that energy to actually walk to a bin as well? But they can't because they're flying. They're flying. They're, they're all oh, all that's why they've dropped it. The, the yeah. force of takeoff means they can't hold fair enough. Yeah. Also, that was, I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's a correct observation, but it was also the most dad thing you've ever said. <laughs> oh, I've always been like this. Long before I was a dad, it was uh, when I see in a river, see in a river something like that, it, I just go, oh, there's the beautiful ducklings and there is the yeah. metal energy it's drink difficult. hazard. What's your other object, Greg? Other thing I want to show you very quickly. I, there's a few things around and I was like, well, maybe I can show you this, but I think you'll enjoy this more. In 1968, uh, Stanley Kubrick tried to make a film about Napoleon. The greatest film never made. And I have a thousand page book that is all of the production notes, the script, the photograph, the research, the letters. Uh, It's an extraordinary tome. And I will try and show you what it looks like. It's sort of this vast thing of just thousands and thousands of production notes. Uh, Sorry. I'm going to do that. Right. So you've got costumes, scripts. The amount uh, of work. Incredible. Letters to people. So this is a letter from Audrey Hepburn, who was meant to play uh, Josephine, and she's turning it down. She's saying, uh, so Stanley wrote to her saying, I'd love you to be in my movie. Do you want to play Empress Josephine? And she's written back saying, ah, oh, dear Stanley, it's very, very kind of you. Thank you so much. Um, but I'm actually feeling quite poorly at the moment, and I'm not really, I'm not really working at the moment, so I'm going to say no on this one. But do let me know if you change it. You know, like, it's a really lovely handwritten letter from Audrey Hepburn to Stanley Kubrick. Um, and that's a letter from Ian Holm, who was possibly going to be in the movie. Um, what, as, as Napoleon? No, he was going to be a smaller role. Uh, Napoleon was going to go to, there were two actors up for the role. Uh, I can't remember who they were, actually. There's a German actor and a British actor. Um, but so I was just thinking, because he was Napoleon in Time yeah, Bandits, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there we've got yeah, letters from Kubrick, and then you've got all the production notes. Uh, production note uh kubrick in, entered into a two-year relationship with a historian uh, just sending him endless letters about what were ice skates like in the 1800s what were hats like what did they have for lunch what did he have for breakfast what was his favorite type of cheese like just endless endless notes and this historian's writing back going dear stanley well he quite liked this type of cheese uh and it's just an amazing amazing book wow. and it's not that expensive actually it's a gorgeous piece of publication and you just get these historical lessons you get kind of what he wanted to do with it um steven spielberg has been trying to turn this into a tv series and every year they sort of kind of go it's going to happen and then it never happens Mm. but this is the film Fifty thousand romanian soldiers were going to be used for the battle thousand people so i love that infantry ten thousand cavalry so it's this enormous thousand page book um and it's got these gorgeous, lovely sort of moments and the entire script from the film. The opening scene is Napoleon, aged four, cuddling his teddy bear. So <laughs> it's kind of, it's one of those ones you're like, that's a film that kind of exists as a book. You can, you can kind of, you can see what Kubrick was going to do with it. I mean, you know how he would have filmed it. He would have shot it with probably candlelight. He would have shot it with fast lenses and an enormous, I mean, the number of extras they are planning for, the budget is extraordinary, but it got, 
blown out the water when um, Waterloo came out in 1970. And they went, ah, oh, I need to do it. Sorry. Uh, and he was also working on a Holocaust film. And then Spielberg um, gazumped him with um, uh, his obvious um, Schindler's List. So uh, twice he sort of had, had this masterwork he was trying to put together. But because he was Kubrick, he couldn't do it in two years. He had to do it incredibly detailed and meant other directors came along and basically pulled the rug out from underneath him so that it's is a fantastic gorgeous, yeah it's a lovely book and not that expensive i think i got it for 60 quid i think and it's possibly wow. even now yeah that's and fantastic it, yeah, we, uh, I, I just, just I, I just had that image of you being that man from the fast show that get getting back and your partner saying did you get the horlicks in the t- tomato <laughs> soup even better a thousand page book about <laughs> stanley kubrick's napoleon such an if anyone went to the exhibition the stanley kubrick exhibition last yeah. year the design museum you will have seen <laughs> that just the first room was was remarkable greg thank you so much for joining us and Pleasure. uh dead famous is out now and of course like many authors at the moment it's it, it was it's a it's a terrible time to have a book out but hopefully it also it's a good time because people do are having more time to read yeah. and uh having started reading it last night and uh Edmund Keane and Marley Cyrus and Oscar Wilde and all the it, it's it's a really interesting book and as you and I think you do have a, a great way where you have a lightness of touch but at the same time that doesn't in any way make the information in it uh or its content facile it's just it's it's great it was a really it's so highly recommend Greg Jenner's um dead famous and hopefully we will see you back in in the uh the the outside world one day hope so thank you so much thanks so much for doing it Um, we have uh tomorrow we have francesca stavrokopoulou on who is uh a brilliant she's a atheist bible scholar and you may well have seen her on on various debate programs if you haven't go and have a look because there's some very funny appearances she had on big questions she's based at exeter university and we're going to be talking to her and uh we also have uh i think it's daniel luke peacock we've got daniel luke peacock uh uh doing music tomorrow uh and daniel peacock there we are the um i've never that shows how now i'm an age where i can't remember if someone has three names it's long gone uh dick dyke van no okay the um josie what are you up to? sorry <laughs> what are you up to uh i'm gonna attempt to do some work which is going to be fun for a couple of hours and then me and my daughter are going to make a stained glass window using um sticky back plastic and colored tissue paper and i imagine that that uh, event will take me 20 minutes to prepare and her one minute to grow tired of <laughs> that reminds me of the great chick murray joke we've got stained glass windows it's those bloody pigeons <laughs> uh, so, uh, Thank you very much, everyone, for watching. And just a reminder as well, uh, Patreon, if you, if you can go and support us via Patreon. Uh, it says Book Shambles on the Patreon site uh, if you go to cosmicshambles.com. But, in fact, the money we use is is for all of the different things that we make. And it's yeah. you know science stuff, it's literary stuff, it's art stuff, and it is these shows as well. And the tip jar as well, as I said, we've given away – we managed to give away £15,000 in, in the last few weeks to art centres and artists who are finding it difficult. And we would like to still keep that going as well because – and I know there's a lot of different things out there. And I know a lot of you are giving to a lot of different things. So thank you very much, everyone who is able to support us. And do not worry, those of you who are not able to. Of course, that's not why this is there. And also, um, if you're if you want fun, tonight is my show, half past eight till half past ten, with a little interval in the middle. And tomorrow night is the Quarantine Comedy Club with John Luke Roberts, another man of three names: John Luke Roberts, me, siblings, Johnny and the Baptist, and Mark Thomas. So that'll be really, really fun. Robert John Luke is great, and the uh, I would and. 
and also over the weekend we have two science shows we have the kids science show on uh, saturday morning uh sunday afternoon we have hannah fry and uh matt parker and helen chersky and then next week we've got That's sean Pauliffe. we've got my son who some of you might have heard the the book shambles we did with her which was uh, i really recommend uh listening to uh very fascinating and uh and very interesting um story and uh, I, we should also have phil jupiter's next week and uh now we are got someone that you will have seen before uh with very often his outfit 1201 alarm or if you've been to any of our uh, live gigs he often plays and very often he plays his laser harp and uh today steve thompson has uh i think a cover version that some of you will enjoy a great deal thanks very much hope you can support us for our patreon subscribe to youtube bye for listening don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment and if you'd like to support us at the cosmic shambles network patreon.com slash book shambles oh.